Well, hello, friends, and a special welcome. Once again, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, you picked a great week. Uh, we're beginning a new eight-week series called Interview with God, just kind of imagining what it would be like to sit down with God and ask him the questions that we've always wanted to ask, even the hard ones. And just to pull you behind the curtain for a bit, uh, kind of a question, how do we come up with series around here? Uh, and there's always a fun story. This one is, is particularly fun. About a year ago, um, Randy Wasink, our exceptionally guapo executive pastor, and if you're familiar with the guy, uh, he walks into my office and he goes, dude, have you, by the way, all great sentences begin with the word dude. Dude, have you seen the movie Interview with God on Netflix? And I said, no, I didn't even know that it existed. And he says, you have to watch it. And so I said, okay. So I went home that day. I said to my wife, we have a homework assignment from Randy. We got to watch this movie, Interview with God. It's on Netflix. And, you know, he wants us to see what we think. So we sit down and we put the kids to bed and pop some popcorn, turn on the movie. And we get about halfway through. And I look over at my wife and I say, this movie is terrible. It's awful. And it's not even theologically awful. It's just awful, awful. It's just not a good movie. And I said, but we got to keep watching because Randy said that we need to watch this movie. And so we watched the rest of the movie and it didn't get any better. It was just like the thing that wouldn't ever end. And, and so the next day I get to the office and I walk up the stairs and I walk into Randy's office and I said, yeah, um, interview with God. He goes, what'd you think? And I said, it's terrible. I said, why would you want me to watch that movie? I mean, what did you like about it? And he looks at me and goes, oh, I haven't seen it. <laughs> he said, I just thought it was a great idea for a series, <laughs> which is good enough. So I made, I made him buy me lunch to apologize for wasting 90 minutes of my life. But all that to say, it is a great concept for a series. And, and it's the journey we get to take together over the next few weeks. And, and what, what excites me is if you're here and you're new to faith, uh, these are probably some of the questions that you carry with you kind of in the background um, of your life. If you are new to faith, um, if you're exploring faith, if you're kicking the tires, or if you've been a Christian for decades, this is going to be a great, great journey together. It's also a great series if you have that one friend who's always like baiting you into conversations and asking you questions you don't know how to answer. could be a great week to invite them to join you for this, this series um, at Keystone, because I think, again, give you a lot to think about and to talk about. Uh, so for today, for our first uh, conversation, I want to start off by asking a question that people who don't believe in God often ask people who do believe in God. And, and from my experience, it's a question that's asked by somebody who really would sort of prefer if they could believe in God, but they're struggling because they don't seem to see a lot of evidence. And the question comes in a bunch of different flavors. The most simple goes like this. How can you be sure that God exists? Uh, maybe said differently, you know, is your faith grounded just in something that you feel? Or is there some like empirical evidence that should be considered from the natural world, from history? I mean, how did you cross the line of faith that now you would say, you know, I believe in God. In, in fact, if I were actually to sit down with God and have a conversation, I might frame the first one something like this. You know, God, I have some friends and, and they're wondering, like, why do you leave so much room for doubt? I mean, are you playing hard to get, which is actually the name of our talk for today? I was particularly excited about it. But anyway, are you playing hard to get or is there another reason that you're so mysterious? Like, why not be more obvious? And in response, I imagine that God would point to three distinct ways 
that he has revealed himself in human history before explaining why he must remain a bit mysterious. And so with our time today, I want to unpack that and show you how I think God would sort of answer our question. Um, first, uh, we need to explore uh, the three unique types of revelation. And for the sake of our conversation, I'll, I'll call them this, a creation, inspiration, and resurrection. And by the way, some of you who grew up in church, just your jaw just dropped because you're like, dude, is Brady actually doing a three-point sermon? Yes, I know. There's a first time for everything. But we have creation, inspiration, and resurrection. And we'll start with creation. It's a great place to start because, well, the fact that we're here at all to talk about any of this is absolutely incredible. Uh, most of us don't think about that because we're busy living our lives and, and drinking coffee and running our kids to soccer. But, but the fact that we're here at all is stunning. Uh, 2,000 years ago, there was an early pastor by the name of Paul, and he was writing a few decades um, after Jesus, and he writes something to Christians living in Rome, which would have been the capital of the world at that point in human history. And here's what he says about the created world. He says, for since the creation of the world, like since the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, God's invisible qualities, in other words, like the fact that he exists and, and what sort of a, a being he is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly, and he says, seen. As in, if you open your eyes and look around, it's there, being understood from what has been made. And it's like Paul's saying, listen, God's fingerprints are all over our world. Or to be a little playful, maybe our fingerprints are all over his world, but that's a conversation for another day. And so I read this and I think, okay, if what Paul said is true, then there must be a way that creation itself affirms the reality of a designer, a designer behind the beauty and the diversity that we see in the natural world. Because in the natural world, or in the ancient world, all they would have had was what they could see with their eyes. I mean, science wasn't very developed yet. And so, so I, I've spent some time this week thinking, okay, in the ancient world, if, if I received a message like this from Paul, what would I think of? And I would think of maybe sunsets, and I would think of maybe the interconnectedness of life. And then I thought, you know, I would actually think about the animal kingdom and those examples in the animal kingdom that are just so beautiful, weird, and random that you're like, there's no way that happened by accident. And of course, I think of the giraffe when I think about that. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a giraffe up close, but the giraffes, I mean, this is how a giraffe drinks. I mean, you're just like, your neck's right there, and like some lion is going to come take you out and whatever. But anyway, uh, the giraffe to me is just a beautiful demonstration of design at work. I mean, it literally looks like somebody took a horse, stretched its legs, stretched its neck, painted it yellow, and covered it with spots. That's what a giraffe looks like. And, and, and they're, they're beautiful, and they scream intentionality. Scientists today tell us, they, they finally solved this mystery. Uh, one of the questions that biologists asked was like, okay, how does a giraffe not pass out? Because there's no way that blood can get all the way up the neck to the brain, and without enough oxygen to the brain, the giraffe passes out. It'd be like one of those fainting goats, only way cooler. Okay, so how does this work? Well, somebody dug into the innards of a giraffe and figured out that they have specialized blood vessels. Like somebody designed specialized blood vessels that would allow this beautiful, weird, slightly random creature to exist and to move and to thrive. They're so weird that it takes a lot of faith to believe they just happened by accident. And so I believe in the ancient world that might have been one of the places 
that they pointed, these weird outlier animals. And of course, when I think weird outlier animals, because we're having fun, just one more. How about the platypus? Ever seen one of these things? I mean, the platypus is, is like biologically so strange, it almost should be impossible. It looks like on a Friday afternoon, they had a bunch of parts lying around wherever they design animals. And, and the guys were like, there's like an intern and he's like gluing stuff together. And then God walked by and was like, okay, let there be life. You know, like, there you go. And then it came to life. And, and you just look at this thing and it looks like, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's just a bunch of parts that came together. And the other thing I was thinking about when I think about um, platypuses, and, and this is sort of weird, maybe this is just me, but I think there's like, they keep making more platypuses or platypi, however you say that, which means like something that looks like this is swimming in, a, in an ocean somewhere or river or wherever they live and sees another one and is like, hey baby, right? And then you have more, so that's just even more evidence to me of a designer at work, and this animal is so biologically inefficient, it's hard to believe it happened by accident. All that to say, God's presence as a designer was clearly evident in the ancient world. So much so, ancient people, it's like, it's hard to find an ancient person that didn't believe in a creative force behind the world in which they lived. Now, I know some of you are here and going, yeah, that's 2,000 years ago, and that's not today, and they thought the earth was flat, and they had a bunch of other stuff wrong. So how about us in our sophisticated, scientific, enlightened culture, is there evidence that we see that points to a designer that's maybe even more compelling than what they had in the ancient world? Because the giraffe thing, okay, maybe. The platypus thing, okay, but what about us? And it's a great question. What's fascinating is that science as we continue to understand our world and our universe, the evidence of design grows stronger with every passing year. In fact, it's so much so that many scientists today would say they don't have enough faith to believe that we're here by accident. There were simply too many things that had to be absolutely perfect in order for life to occur. And because I had some time this week to study this and I got to nerd out and I was having a glorious week, um, but I found some things that I thought were so interesting. I want to share just, just one of them with you. I found the work of an astrophysicist named Hugh Ross. And he was explaining that there are hundreds and hundreds of things that have to be just perfect in order for life to happen here, now, or really anywhere. And he said, each one of these things, there's a probability that it would be the way it needs to be for life. And he says, and when you throw all the probabilities together, it's absolutely crazy. And then he said, just let's just pick one of the hundreds of things that have to be just so, and let me show you how unlikely that one thing is. And then you lump all those together and you sort of will see what I'm talking about. Um, us common people who are not astrophysicists, don't you know? And so he said, uh, one of the things that is really interesting to consider is that there is a ratio that has to be just as it is between the electrons and the proton masses inside of atoms, which none of that's important. But he said, if it were any greater or lesser than it is, life would not be possible. And the odds that it is exactly what it is are 1 in 10 to the 37th power, which it's been a long time since I did high school math, right? And so I kept reading, and he said, let me show you how incredibly unlikely something is if it's 1 to the 37th power, 1 chance in 10 to the 37th. Here's what he says. And again, this is just brilliant. He says, okay, if you want to know what 1 to the 10 and 37th, here you go. Cover the entire North American continent in dimes. And I already like this guy, don't you? Yeah. Like you would do that. But all, and then he says, cover it with dimes and then stack it all the way up to the moon, a height of about 239,000 miles. That's a lot of dimes in case you're counting. 
Next, he said, pile dimes from here to the moon on a billion other continents the same size as North America. And I want to have lunch with this guy because this is getting awesome. That is an incredible amount of dimes. Then he says, paint one dime red and mix it into the billions of piles of dimes. Blindfold a friend and ask him to pick out one dime. The odds that he will pick the red dime are 1 in 10 to the 37th power. All that to say, it is conceivable that someone would do that, but it is practically impossible. When I was talking to Ryan this week, he's like, yeah, it would be like me starting to play the lottery and winning the mega jackpot a billion times in a row. You can get your head around it, but there's no way it's happening. And that's only one of the hundreds of things that have to be just right in order for life to exist here, now, or anywhere. All that to say, it takes a lot of faith to believe life happened by accident. Just for fun, here's a couple other things that have to be just so for us to be here. Now, the earth sits 93 million miles, give or take, from the sun. And what's helpful about that is um, sometimes of the year we're closer, sometimes we're a little farther away, but we always stay within what scientists call the Goldilocks zone. Maybe you remember this with the three bears? Not too hot and not too cold. You've heard this. Yeah. So we are right where we need to be. If we're any closer to the sun, we'll overheat. Any farther away, we freeze. Now, the earth also has a tip to it, 23.5 degrees on its axis. It has been called a gangsta lean, right? And 23.5 degrees, the earth must not only tip 23.5 degrees for there to be life, it can't tip any more or less than 23.5 degrees. If it did, the earth wouldn't rotate, It would become what they call tidally locked, one side getting hotter and hotter, the other side getting colder and colder to the point that life on earth would cease to be possible. So scientists are like, okay, how did that ever happen? How can the earth be tipping 23.5 degrees? It's a complicated interplay between the sun's gravity and the moon's gravity, which means if our moon were any larger or smaller than it was or any farther away or nearer than it was, life on earth would not be possible. One more just for fun. Our atmosphere consists of 21% oxygen. Any more, any less. Life doesn't happen. And there are hundreds of other parameters of physics that are insanely fine-tuned. And if any one of these were altered in any way, life would fall apart. It's like beyond amazing that we're here at all. And it's, it's hard not to believe in a designer. There's a book, if you're interested in, in this sort of thing, by Lee Strobel. It's called The Case for a Creator. And here's what Lee says. He says, if you think of all the things that have to be just right in order for you and I to be, if each thing were a dial, there'd be hundreds of dials with billions of different settings. And if one dial were turned one click in either direction, everything would fall apart. And if there's hundreds of dials and billions of different settings, he's saying, like, if any one of those dials was moved one way or the other. The fact that the rest of them are perfectly where they should be becomes irrelevant. Life isn't possible. So if you say to me, you know, how does the creation point you to the existence of God? I would say, when you follow the evidence of science, it suggests something shocking. It actually takes a lot of faith not to believe in God. Now, this is what people call deism. This just means there's a designer, there's a, there's a source, there's, a, there's an intentionality behind creation. That doesn't get you to Jesus, but stay tuned. Uh, we'll go there very, very soon. But this, to me, is the power of creation, and it's the first way that God has chosen to reveal himself. So I think he'd start there where we just sit down for an interview. The second way that I think God has revealed himself is through something we'll call inspiration. 
uh, specifically the inspiration of the human authors of the books of the Bible. Because, and this may be a new thought to you, the Bible is the most fascinating and progressive collection of documents in human history. In fact, it's so progressive and the ideas it contains were so far ahead of their time that their existence at all is powerful evidence for God. And the reason many people in our world miss this fact is that we forget the original context into which these books were first written. And when that happens, the Bible can seem archaic or even regressive, which you probably have friends that have, have told you that. I, I certainly have. I, I want to show you what I mean by taking you to a particularly violent passage in the Old Testament. And it's the kind of passage generally used to argue that the Bible is primitive. But stay with me uh, because I want to show you something else at work in these verses. And it's surprising and it's compelling. Uh, the passage I want to show you is from the second book in the Old Testament. It's a book called Exodus. As we enter the text, we need to remember the original audience. You say, well, who first received these words. They were the rescued children of a man named Israel who had been in Egypt for 400 years. Now, they'd been in Egypt so long that though God had rescued them, they were functionally Egyptian in their worldview. They walked like Egyptians. They talked like Egyptians. They listened to the Bengals. Okay, I'm telling you that it would have been, they would have been functionally Egyptian. And God takes this group of people and he wants to show them a new way to do life. But he has to enter into their context in order to help them see where he wants to take them. And so here's one of the things God says as he's teaching them this new way to do life. He says this. He says, but if there is serious injury, like you have damage sustained by someone else, he says, here's what you got to do. You are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, for wound bruise for bruise. And we would look at this and go, oh yeah, the eye for an eye thing. But if you, if you like stop and just think about this, we would never allow this in our culture today, right? You are to take life for life. That means like, oh, uh, you know, your neighbor Bob knocks on your door and says, hey, I'm so sorry, but we were out in the woods and, you know, your, your kid got sideways with my kid and he kind of killed him, right? And you go, okay, well, I'll be over tomorrow to kill your kid because it's eye for eye thing. That's, that's how that works, right? Or, or, you know, we were in a wrestling match the other day and, you know, like, you know, you poked at my eye and I can't see out it anymore. So here's what I got to do. Tomorrow I'll just come over. We'll settle things up. Even the score, I'll just poke your eye out. That'll be great, right? And, and you read that and you go, wait a minute. Is this really what God wants for his people? And if that's the case, like, why would he say that to them? It just seems so archaic and so primitive. But, but, but again, there's another way to read this verse. It's barbaric to us. But in ancient Egypt, there were rules for what would happen when someone hurt you. And in ancient Egypt, it was normal if someone hurt you that you would go back and hurt them, but you would charge them a bit of interest. So, like, they kill your cow... And you go slaughter their herd, including their two llamas and maybe their kid in response. And so God says to his people, listen, the punishment needs to fit the crime. That's the new thought here. The punishment needs to fit the crime. This law was actually given to lessen violence in the ancient world. And it was a massive step in the right direction. So when we read it from our present context, this wisdom can be easy to miss. But but at the time this command was given, this was a divine revelation that pushed human history in the right direction. This isn't something humans came up with on their own. This was like God's light invading the darkness of an ancient culture and pointing them forward. And so you say, well, did they still have a long way to go? Of course they had a long way to go, but it was a step in the right direction. 
So that was the ancient, ancient world. You fast forward hundreds of years to the time of Jesus. And in the time of Jesus, something terrible had happened uh, with with the way this command was understood. In Jesus' day, people would have some violence or injustice done to them. And then they would justify revenge by saying, hey, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. In other words, I'm going to do to them what they did to me. And this same verse was intended to create a fair and just legal system, one that lessened violence and revenge, was hundreds of years later being used to justify and amplify violence and revenge. And so Jesus enters this context and again shines the light of God's truth into their darkness. And here's what he says, and this is fascinating, it's from Matthew's account of Jesus' life. Jesus says to them, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And they go, oh yeah, we've, we've heard that. Hundreds of years ago, Moses told us that. We remember, we do, that's what we do. And Jesus says, but I tell you, and you're like, wait a minute, can you do that, Jesus? Yes, I can, because I'm Jesus. You'll figure that out later. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And you're like, wait a minute, this does not sound like eye for an eye. And it doesn't, and it isn't. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, Hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And you're like, Jesus, wait a minute. We went from an eye to an eye to you're telling our, your followers that you want us to be doormats. And that's not what's going on in this passage. We studied this in depth this summer. You can catch up on the podcast. It's in the series Better. But what Jesus is basically saying here is, I want you to respond to violence with nonviolence. Because the cycle of violence and revenge never really fixes anything, which is brilliant. But but what Jesus is really saying then is what was a step forward for the people in the time of the Exodus became a step backwards by the time you reach Jesus' day, which raises a really interesting question. Did God change his mind? And if we were sitting in the chair and we said, okay, wait, so which is it, God? We follow Jesus, we follow Moses. I mean, did, did you change your mind? God would say, no, of course I didn't change my mind. Not at all. I didn't change my mind. I just contextualized my message to the people I was trying to help. In each case, I'm trying to move people forward. In each case, my light is invading the darkness of their time and their space. So when you read the Bible, you just got to know where you are in the story. But when you see that, you start to understand that, man, the Bible itself is a powerful, powerful witness to the existence of God. So that's, I think, the second thing God would would talk to us about. Third thing I think he would point to, and this this is a big one, uh, is resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus. And if you've been around here for a while, this, this will not surprise you. We talk about the resurrection of Jesus all the time because it was the event that literally changed the course of human history. And in the end, I would argue, provides incredible evidence for the existence of God. And I get there by by thinking about it this way. Uh, There is no reputable historian who denies the existence of the man, Jesus Christ. That he was born, that he lived, that he called disciples, that he taught, that he got sideways with the Jewish religious leaders, then he was falsely accused, arrested, tried, convicted, crucified, and buried. Everyone agrees that 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 happened. The other thing that everyone agrees on is that if the story had ended there, then we wouldn't be here now. If the story of Jesus had ended when that rock sealed the tomb in which his body had been laid, there would be no Bible. If the story had ended there, there would be no recorded accounts of the life of Jesus. If the story had ended there, there would be no church. If the story had ended there, I mean, the life of Jesus would hardly have merited a footnote in the history 
of the Jewish people. Yet, as you know, Jesus' story didn't end with his crucifixion and burial. What everyone thought was the end was, in fact, the beginning. When Jesus hung on the cross, everyone unfollowed him. Everyone had hoped he was who he said he was. Everyone had believed he was who he said he was. But when Jesus died on the cross, they all walked away. But then a couple days after his death, people all over Israel began to report seeing him alive again. And it was inconceivable, but it was undeniable. And, and first it was individuals, and then it was groups, and then it was larger groups of people saying, yeah, I don't know how. I'm not sure how the whole thing worked, but he's back. And this changes everything. And a few weeks after the crucifixion of Jesus, those first disciples hit the streets of Jerusalem and they are fearless because their leader has risen from the grave and they are convinced of that reality to their very core. And when Jesus rose from the grave, it was a powerful affirmation of everything else he said. But as the message of Christianity spread through the ancient world, the central idea, the central affirmation was the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, decades after the resurrection of Jesus, there's a pastor named Paul, and he's writing to a group of Christians living in Greece, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And they have questions like this resurrection thing. It just seems, it seems like it's way out there. I mean, do you mean like metaphorically his ideas were resurrected? Or what do you mean, Paul? And to that group, Paul writes one of the most incredible, incredible passages in the entire Bible. Here's what he says. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Paul's like, put this right on the top of the list. You're trying to figure out what we're about, what we believe. Here you go. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That literally like everything in the Jewish scriptures was like a big sign pointing to Jesus. The sacrificial system, the blood of animals that was spilled, all of that looked forward to the day when on the cross the blood of Jesus would spill and it would heal the separation that sin had created between people and their creator. Christ died for our sins according to scripture, that he was buried, as in wrapped in 75 pounds of cloth, looked like an Egyptian mummy, shoved in it, he would have suffocated if he wasn't already dead, shut him in the tomb, closed the door, he was buried. But that's not where the story ended, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. If you look back, they point to this incredible reality that would someday come. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. If I was translating it, I'd probably just say Peter because we get confused. But he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. So that's his inner circle. So he appears to Peter, then he appears to his, his, his innermost circle to affirm his reality. There's that scene where they're in the locked room in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus appears among them and like doubting Thomas, right, puts his hand in the side of Jesus, touches where the nails had pierced his hands. It's like he was back and it was literal. After that, he said, hold on, we got individuals, we got groups. He goes, oh, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Like if you get on a boat with me right now, I'll take you back. I'll introduce you to them, right? Here's Chaim. He saw him, right? Yeah, you did. And your wife and your kids. Yeah, the whole thing. Like they're still around. You can talk to them. This is a powerful witness. At the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which is a really polite first century way of saying they died. But Paul basically says, listen, well, actually, let me show you. He says one more thing. That, this is one, like, he throws down the gauntlet. He goes like this. 
And if Christ has not been raised, like those are your questions, right? If Christ has not been raised, how important is this, Paul? Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. The whole thing is predicated on the historical reality of the resurrection. Paul's like, if he isn't literally raised, my whole life is a waste. Your whole faith is a waste. Our preaching is a waste. We should just close the whole thing down and go home. But he was raised. And the witnesses were all over the ancient world. And this was the central affirmation of the Christian movement as it exploded out of the gate. Incredibly persecuted, sandwiched between the Roman Empire that wanted it snuffed out and the Jewish temple establishment, which also wanted it snuffed out. Christianity began to thrive with this incredible, incredible message that was inconceivable and yet undeniable. Um, I shared a quote this past Easter I wanted to revisit with you. It's from a New Testament scholar named Gary Habermas. And Gary has spent his life drilling down on the historical reality of the resurrection because he believes this is what we need to tie off to as followers of Jesus. Like we, this, is, this is one of those places where we need to stake our tent. He says this. He writes, The resurrection was undoubtedly the central proclamation of the early church from the very beginning. The earliest Christians didn't just endorse Jesus' teachings. They were convinced they had seen him alive after his crucifixion. He goes on, he says, that's what changed their lives and started the church. He says, certainly since this was their centermost conviction, they would have made absolutely sure that it was true. That's why in church, like Easter for the church is like Super Bowl Sunday. It's like, it, it, it all started on Easter, when the, when the tomb was empty, that was, that was where everything got started. And so Gary would say to us, listen, as far as evidence for God is concerned, the resurrection is, is stunning. And the implications to the resurrection are stunning because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, that affirmed everything else that he taught and said, including that the creator of heaven and earth, the, the designer behind the design we experience in this world, wants to be known as a heavenly father. And he's done everything possible to reach down and to communicate that reality through creation, through inspiration, and through the resurrection of Jesus. And that, that leads me to today's big idea. And it goes like this. The reality of God is not hidden so long as you know where to look. The reality of God is not hidden so long as you know where to look. Now, I suspect I know what a few of you are thinking, and it goes like this, you know, okay, Bible boy, all that is fairly compelling, but why doesn't God make it easier to believe he exists? Why does he have to play hard to get? Like, why does he need to be so mysterious? And I believe that the answer to that question lies in the sort of relationship he wants with us. In fact, if I may be so bold, I want to sort of tell you how I think God would answer that question. Now, a couple of disclaimers. One, I am not a prophet. So feel free to disagree with me, right? And two, I don't have a red phone, so this is not word for word from God, even though there's quotes on the slide, and I probably shouldn't have put quotes, but you get what I'm saying. Okay, so here's how I think God might answer the question. Here we go. In the end, I want to be in relationship with people who want to be in relationship with me. And by the way, that idea you see all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The love I have for every single person ever compels me to pursue them 
persuasively, but not coercively. Because of love, I, I, I have to persuade you, but I'm not going to coerce you to do something. Because as soon as I force you to do something you don't want to do, that's not love. And then this, as soon as I reveal myself fully to someone, their ability to choose to enter a relationship with me evaporates. And, and again, this is swimming in the deep end, but if the creator of heaven and earth shows up in glory, there's only one response. And you actually see this in the last book of the Bible in Revelation, where the glory of the Lord is revealed to the earth. And, and literally it says, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because when you're in the unadulterated presence of the divine, the only thing you have the ability to do is hit your knees. And, and there's no choice. And so as I see it, mystery then is a necessary condition of my love for you because on the cross, it's like God proposed to every single person and said, will you have me? But then the love requires that he risks rejection in order to find relationship because as soon as he shows up in glory, again, there's no choice. And so he's looking for people who want to be with him. Now, I'm aware that that raises more questions. And that's fantastic because that's where we're going to pick it up next week. See what I did there? I was really excited about that. Okay. As we continue our interview with God. Would you stand? And I'll close this. Heavenly Father, we live in a world of distraction. And, and just thank you for a time and a space where we can come together and swim in the deep end for a little bit and think thoughts that we probably haven't thought about in a long time or even ever. But it is so clear that this earth is covered with your fingerprints. And when we choose to look and we choose to see, uh, the affirmation of your existence is all around us. We thank you for the testimony of your work through history culminating with the resurrection of your son. We are gathered here today because of what happened then and what continues to happen in the lives of people who come into relationship with you. So I pray for all of us that carried a heavy burden into this place and maybe even came in today wondering if you're there at all. I pray that they would sense your presence, that the objective truth we've studied would intersect with the subjective knowledge that somehow on the inside we know that you're there, that you care. I pray for your grace and your peace to be on us all as we try to be a people in this world that live in the light of the resurrection. And we bless you and thank you for loving us in ways that we can only begin to grasp. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, the risen Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, grace and peace. We'll see you next week.